0: Thank you, it's been a privilege and a joy to be here. And it does make me very, very happy and encouraged about the future to see congregations and schools like this. Our scripture this evening begins in 1 Kings, 22 the 51st verse and goes through the first chapter of second Kings, first kings 22 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served to Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down to a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whither I shall recover of this disease. the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Kishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was an hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather about his lines. And he said, It is Elijah the fight. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty, with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of the hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered, and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty, and he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the Lord, that hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven, and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven, and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of the third third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. And besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee. Let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be crushed in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him and be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of above the God of Ekron, is it not because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram raised in his stead in the second year of Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? This is a story that seems to embarrass many Bible commentators. The idea of God killing two groups of 50 men horrifies them. Now, of course, these same critics see no harm in killing people they dislike. It does not disturb them that Nazis or Christians or racists or capitalists or anybody else is executed except those that they happen to feel sorry for. Nowadays, of course, they feel sorry for the criminals and not for us. But God is not allowed to execute his enemies, And some of these commentators do something which is very ungodly. They quote scripture against scripture, rather than trying to understand scripture with scripture. And so they quote Luke 9, verses 51 through 56, and they will make the statements that Elijah represents a kind of lower mentality. Well, if he did, why in the world did God honor him? And who are we to call Elijah lower? I wish we had a few Elijahs around. Now, we read in Luke 9, 51 through 56, and it seemed to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. Uh, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And so they tell us, Well, you see, our Lord said that the disciples were wrong in this situation and that his ministry was to save the lives of men, not to destroy them. Now, Is this so? Is our Lord saying that Elijah was wrong? Not a word of it. All he said was that the disciples were wrong at that point. Not Elijah. Moreover, this comes as the last public appearance before being taken up into heaven of the prophet Elijah. For a generation, he has witnessed to the people. And now, this flagrant insult to God by Ahaziah. First, the long, the lifelong witness, and then the judgment. Is it any different in our Lord's day? This episode in Luke is from the middle of his ministry. Uh He said he had come to seek and to save those that were lost and those whom he called out. He gave instructions to that when certain things happened, even if they were on the housetops, because houses then had flat roofs, and in the summer he people slept there, not to go down to pack up, but to head for the hills, because the judgment of Almighty God was going to come upon him. Jerusalem, and Judea. Not a Christian lost his life because they heeded our Lord's word. But it was a total judgment. And Scripture tells us it was the most fearful episode in all of history. And there will never be anything to equal. Now, did our Lord say, I don't believe in judgment? Far from it. What our Lord made clear was that his ministry was to proclaim salvation, to gather out the people and then seem to the judge them. Even as Elijah anointed Elisha and started three schools of the prophets of seminaries to witness and to call out the people before the judgment God had pronounced through him on Israel would consume and destroy the nation forever. But of course, people do not like judgment. It doesn't sit well with them. I shall never forget that some years ago, Dorothy, my wife, ...had a woman tell her that uh, she believed in annihilation, not hell. and Dorothy kept probing her on that. And found out, because the woman finally said so, her sons were all reprobate. And she did not want them to spend eternity in hell. And so she had decided that since she didn't want them there, God certainly wouldn't want them there, and they would be put to sleep quietly and eternally and annihilated. That would be the easiest way to solve the situation. And therefore, she didn't want any part of a God who would have a hell. Dorothy's answer was, he obviously knows want no part of the living God. We cannot have God on our terms. And this, of course, is the reason for most unbelief. Men want God on their terms, to serve their needs, to be a great resource for man. They do not want the living God. Well, we have here Isaiah, an evil son of an evil father and mother, but he lacks the ability of either his father or his mother. Now, this is a significant fact. It's a common fact. It's a fact which should give us great comfort. You see, Nothing stands still in this world. We as Christians do not stand still. If we do, we're not Christians. We either grow in grace or we have no grace. And when we stand in terms of the faith and meet our responsibilities under God, it is not only we who grow, but our children grow beyond us in their obedience, in their awareness, in their knowledge of the kingdom. It was one of the most marvelous days in my life when something I had really known instinctively, but it fully dawned on me once at the table, when we were talking about doctrine and going over some aspects of the catechism and its meaning, as I was listening to the youngest of my four daughters and next to the youngest child, I suddenly realized here she was young and she had a knowledge of things that took me much longer to practice because I didn't have that Christian feeling. I had as fine a Christian home training as anyone could have. But I didn't have the school supporting the home. And she had both. And it was marvelous to see the progress of it. And I was with her overnight before I took the plane to come to Birmingham and then down here. And I listened to the oldest of her three daughters in the first grade. And I realized how much further along little Christine is. And it was a delight, a very great joy to see that with each generation, the growth, the progress, starting much further ahead than those of us who've gone before in their awareness of the faith and their, uh, in their receptivity to it. Now, the same thing happens to the ungodly. Ahaziah is evil and blundering and incompetent to a degree that Ahab and Jezebel were not. And there is a downward slide with the ungodly. You see this everywhere in the world. Men who are experts in analyzing and studying the communist world have said there is a difference with each passing generation in the level of competence in the Marxist world. They are not as bold, they are as evil, but they are not as bold and not as confident, and they become more self serving. So that evil goes downhill in time as holiness goes further and further ahead. Well, of course, the parable, The Terrors and the Weak, tells us this. That at the beginning, the Terrors and the Weak are very much alike but with time the wheat becomes obviously what it is and the tares become more obviously what they are so that you can spot the difference between them readily there's a growth in both directions and so there is a deterioration of the ungodly All you have to do is to look at the White House. Each occupant gets worse, doesn't he? Now, not only did Ahaziah lack the authority of his father and his mother, but he was also cowardly. Moab, which had been in subjection to Israel, rebelled. Everybody went to war except Ahaziah. He should have been the commander. He was the king. He was a young man. But, of course, Ahaziah knew the prophecy of Elijah. He knew his father had been killed in battle as had been predicted by Micaiah. And as had been predicted by Elijah. He was going to frustrate God. He was going to stay at home during the war, neatly surrounded by the palace guard. Isn't that a beautiful way to foil God? How are you going to get killed when you're at home? Well, whether he had a little too much to drink or whether he stumbled... And fell, we don't know, but he fell through the lattice work in an upper story and was seriously injured, critically injured. And so, he inquired the veils he dubbed the god of Ephraim. The true pagan. Now it's interesting that Isaiah did not send to find whether he could be healed. He wanted to know the future. What was his fate? And so many of the ungodly are that way. They go to astrology. Why? They want to know what's in their future. They don't want to command the future. They simply want to know what is there. This is, of course, Saul. Saul should have known, having been properly taught, that the way to command the future was by being commanded of the Lord. He said, he wanted to know, what's going to happen to me? Some years ago, I read a very interesting book about the gypsies by a young man who was taken into a gypsy camp and lived there for years. He said that the one thing that the gypsies never indulged in for themselves with fortune-telling concerning their own future. The Jitsi woman made a good living by fortune-telling. But they regarded all who came to them with contempt as the ultimate suckers. They used words that were as crude and blunt as possible, I used this blunt word to describe them, the ones that this man cited were blunt. Why? Because, said the gypsy, people who go to a fortune teller seek self-fulfilling prophecy. They're losers. And it's easy to ascertain their character and with a few questions find out what their fears are and to give them a word which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're going to be themselves. That's their life. And today, of course, people all around us are going to astrology. And the various forms of occultism, not because of any other reason than to know the future. What is fated for me? What's in the stars for me? And those who seek to command the future apart from the Lord seek to control the future non-morally. This is the goal of the modern scientists and the modern socialists. They want to control the future, but non-morally, through their science, through their planning, their predictions, their control. And the Lord's attitude towards this is always that which we meet with here, in reference to Isaiah. He sees it as an insult to him. He is the Lord. All things are in his hand, and anyone who wants to know the future can know it only in terms of the word of God. The wages of sin are always dead. If we follow the Lord's ways, read Deuteronomy 28, the classic statement of this. These blessings will pursue us and overtake us. They're irresistible. Whereas with disobedience, his curses are irresistible. To bypass God in any attempt to plan for or to know about the future is an insult to God. We can be prophets of future events in terms of the Word. God says what will happen if we do certain things. It's spelled out there so that we can predict. And we must predict. The essence of preaching is to declare the Word of God and a fundamental aspect of the Word of God. To say that the wages of been a But that obedience, the obedience of faith, brings the blessings of God. To seek to know the future apart from God is to treat God as dead. Now, let's stop for a moment and consider that. It is to treat God as this. Well, not too long ago, we had in the 1960s the Death of God School of Theology. Its effect is still with us. It now calls itself by other names, but it's the same fundamental idea. Now, what very few people realize about that of was that they never flatly said God is dead. They never did. What they said was is that the God of Scripture is dead for us. That as far as we are concerned he is dead. Whether he's living or not is irrelevant to us. We don't want any part of him. So their emphatic statement at all points was not simply, God is dead, but he is dead before us, because we have chosen to live life on our terms, in terms of our own goals and our own directions, our own government, and we say that the government must be upon man's shoulders. Now, I submit that anyone who thinks about today and tomorrow apart from the Lord belongs to the death of God's school. He may say as a Christian, he may profess to believe the Bible from cover to cover, but the essence of the death of God position is to say, God is dead for me because I'm going to disregard him, and I'm going to act as though he and his words do not exist. far as most churches and most communities are concerned, God is dead. They get together weekly, they sing hymns, they profess to believe the Bible, some of them don't even do that, but irrespective of them, God is dead. They're not involved in the wars of the Lord. They're there to get whatever they want to go out with a nice, happy glow to meet a lot of good people, and because it's good for their children, it will make them more obedient to get some of that Sunday school training. And that's all. That's all. For them, the living God is dead to all practical intent. Should not God declare war on this? And is that not exactly what we see here in this country? At the culmination of his ministry, God, Elijah, pronounces death on this condition, on the death of God and then This tells us something about our own time if we do not change our ways. Men want God to be dead to them, except as a resource when they want him, you know. Nice to have a grandfather in heaven that you can plug into when you want something. The rest of the time, forget about it. But men do not want God interfering in this world. They say, in effect, as they read passages like this, Now look, God, that, that's not handling it the right way. Let us take charge. Let us do our own judging, our own killing, our own saving. In effect, they're saying, we are wiser than that. Should we then be surprised at God's judgment? Isaiah stayed out of the battle to escape the judgment of God, knowing God's judgment. He died. No man can stay out of the wars of the Lord without being just of God. We either fight the Lord's battles or like Ahab and Aziah, we perish fighting our own. The theology of the lie is a belief that God is dead for me whenever I choose to shut the door on him. But if I choose to go my own way, I should have the right as a free and independent person to decide what I choose, live as I choose, as long as I'm not being deliberately insulting to God and uh, defiant of him, I have the right to live my own life. The theology of the lie says that there is an area that belongs to man and God had better not talk to the lie. The theology of the lie. Is the reigning theology of man's heart. We want God, but on our turn. We want God to judge the world and its sins, but not us. We want not the living God, but that our way be done. The Lord I cannot save. But that he will deal with them, we can rest assured. They are acting as though God is dead. And they are trying to determine the future without reference to the word of God and with reference to Dayton and Moscow. And do you think God takes any more the kindly to that than he did to what Isaiah did? The Lord will deal with them that we can be assured. The question is, where do we stand in relationship to the living God? Do we live by his every word? Do we stand in terms of the request to submit ourselves to him as the Lord, as his absolute possession? The essence of the law is Thou shalt love the Lord Thy God with all Thy heart, mind, and Jesus Do we do, this? Let us pray Our Lord and our God We thank thee for this time together And for this week of fellowship We thank thee, our Father, for thee, thy people, thy servants, thy pastors. And we rejoice in their love of thy word and their dedication to the cause of Christian education. We pray for thy blessing and prospering hand upon them. Protect them from the wrath of the enemy. Bring unto them thine elect. And gather the little children into the bosom of this school, that they may there be nurtured in thy word and by thy spirit. Bless the parents as they guide and teach their children, and the teachers as day by day they nurture them. In thine admonition, bless thine under shepherd as he serves and ministers to his every need. Now, Lord, give us traveling mercy as we journey homeward. A blessed night, Lord, joy always in thee and in our labor unto thee in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been taking just a little while. We've got afterwards for questions and answers. I've asked Dr. Weston if he would elaborate on two things tonight. I ask that he do that first.